Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can join us, uh, click subscribe, rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, or on the uh, YouTube channel where you also get quick take reviews as well as some other uh, specials if you subscribe to www.patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. There you will get series like Leaving the Collection, as well as Life Soundtrack, as well as Oscar coverage, new uh, reviews for older movies that I don't necessarily write about on the main site. And uh, that is all available at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. So this was, it, it's funny because of the fact that I had the idea for this episode last year when it looked like that our subject might be um, at the end of his career after this year, but apparently that may or may not be the case. We'll, we'll kind of see where things go in the next year or so. I will take as many film scores from this composer uh, as I can, and that is the one and only John Williams. Join me to discuss uh, Williams and his career. We have a roundtable dis- of uh, guests, and most of these, most of them you've heard from before, and we've got one new one. But I've actually shared the I've shared the uh, mic with her before, and so I'm looking for. I wanted to have her on this discussion because I know how much uh, Williams' music means to her. Starting off, uh, we have the co-host of NostalgiaCast, Darren Lundberg. Hi, Brian, Danielle, Kelly, Becky, how's everybody doing? <laughs> Fine, thanks. Good. Well. <laughs> and uh, joining me again, also uh, from Salty at the Movies, we have Danielle Saltzman. Danielle, thank you very much for joining me again. Thank you for having me. Uh, returning from their last uh, time being on the podcast, where we talked about horror soundtracks, is Dr. Becky O'Brien. Becky, thank you very much for joining me again. Thank, thank you for having me. And new to the podcast is Kelly. Uh, she goes by Yoda Pr- Princess on Twitter, and she was actually somebody I shared the mic with at Dragon Con last year when we talked about the music of Star Wars at panel. Kelly, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, um, I, I, you know, it, it's funny because normally what I would start off with when we're talking about a specific filmmaker or composer or actor is what was your first memory of experience with this filmmaker, with that particular filmmaker. But with John Williams, I feel like you know, everybody is basically going to have the same type of introduction, whether it's Star Wars, whether it's E.T., whether it's Rares of Lost Ark, or whether it's Jaws, Superman, Jurassic Park. So um, let's go ahead and start with Darren and just go around and what do, and answer the question, what does... What does John Williams' music mean to you? I think we've discussed this before. I think uh, you and I and Danielle had a Steven Spielberg discussion. And I talked about Jaws. 
Jaws was uh, the movie that made me fall in love or even recognize that movies were movies. I don't know if that makes any sense. Obviously, the direction, uh, the way that the everything was just built, the characters, just the way that it affected me was so monumental back in my, maybe I was five or six when I first really got addicted to that movie. And obviously, one of the big parts of the movie is the music. And it's just... Um, I always say that one of the greatest things about John Williams is he didn't just score one of the greatest, uh, write one of the, compose one of the greatest music scores of all time. He composed a theme for an animal. And I don't know <laughs> if any other composer has been able to do that. When you hear that Jaws theme, you think shark. You don't just think Jaws, you think shark. And so it's just been, become synonymous with that. Um, and again, that was very huge for me when I was a kid. It's just very formative. And that was the first time, again, I noticed uh, direction and acting and writing and uh, production design and special effects and music and just the way all that affected me. I think John Williams, you know, I got Corn Gold and uh, Herman and all these other uh, composers that are so iconic. But as far as my lifetime goes, I think Williams is the most, um, yeah, the most important, the most for, uh, front and uh, center of all the movie composers that I that I know. I think he ranks up there with all the classics, uh, Steiner, you know, everybody that I've ever mentioned, all that. And so he's just the modern day equivalent of all those classic scores. But yeah, it's Jaws was the one, and Superman got me addicted. Raiders of the Lost Ark, obviously E.T. And so there's just so many movies that we can talk about. But that uh, Steven Spielberg shark movie is the one that got me addicted to him and his music, or at least got him on my radar. Mm -hmm. Danielle, what about you? Well, uh, for me, the first uh, John Williams score that I ever heard was Home Alone back in, in 1990. And then the next year you had Hook. And then that seminal moment came in 93 with uh, Jurassic Park. I mean, there was a time when my cousin brought over Star Wars A New Hope when she was babysitting me and my brother, but for life of me, I cannot remember which year that was. And it wasn't until 97 when I got into really Star Wars with special editions and then watched Indiana Jones that year. But yeah, I mean, if I ever have an opportunity to meet John Williams in person, I'm going to thank him for scoring my childhood. <laughs> just like I recently had an opportunity to thank Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy for the role that they played in shaping my childhood through their movies. Wow. That, that's, I, I can't believe you would say that about Kathleen Kennedy. I thought she ruined everything. <laughs> but we're not going there. We're not going there. We're talking about John Williams. We're celebrating the work of John Williams. Uh, that that would be another two-hour discussion that I'm not really interested in having with pretty much anybody because they typically don't know what they're talking about. Uh, <laughs> Becky, what about you? Oh, gosh, where to even begin with John Williams? I mean, for, for me, I guess it, predictably enough, it, it all comes back to Star Wars for me. Um, I had watched... I'd been watching the original trilogy since before I can remember. We had the original, original versions taped off TV. So that was my first, even before I knew who John Williams was, that was my first connection to his music. And, and even before I realized there was a composer doing such things, someone making these amazing sounds that brought the whole story to life. And you can imagine my delight a number of years later, I want to say it was the late 90s when it dawned on me that all my favorite movies from childhood 
were scored by the same man. Mm-hmm. And that just cemented him as my favorite. I mean, when you have someone who writes for Superman, Indiana Jones, and Star Wars, just to name a few, nothing can ever surpass him for me. He's the epitome for me of what film music should be. And I genuinely believe no one is ever going to surpass him in terms of magnitude of the effect he's had. Here, here. Agree on all of that. Kelly, what about you? Yeah, I, I don't remember a time before I knew about Star Wars. So I grew up with that. One of my earliest memories is watching E.T. in the, in the movie theater. Um, my dad had taped Raiders of the Lost Ark off television. And I remember um, even before Temple of Doom came out in the theaters, uh, I would swing on this trapeze bar on my, my swing set and, and kind of sing and hum the Raiders theme, the Raiders march. And pretend I was Indiana Jones, but it wasn't until I was a teenager um, when I kind of got back into Star Wars that I I started making the connection, reading movie credits, and and had a very similar experience as Becky. That wow, all these these themes and and music that I've been singing all my life is is by one person. And I remember being in the swimming pool humming the Jaws theme, and I never even saw Jaws until. I was in high school. Um, I don't think I was allowed to watch it because um, my parents were kind of strict about stuff. They they let us watch Indiana Jones, but I think my mother had issues with the ending, you know, like Kali Ma and all. <laughs> She's like, why am I watching watching this? But um, so, yeah, so I, I really, really kind of discovered John Williams as a, a composer right before Jurassic Park and Schindler's List when he had, you know, one of his best years ever as far as film composition and um continue to love him till this day and everything he does is is amazing and i i just love him yeah no i mean and i i I think my experience with williams really does boil down to very much the same way that uh becky and kelly are explaining where it's like you know you're obviously when you watch movies like star wars like et you do kind of notice the music but I, I think it wasn't really until it w- really wasn't until I started as a musician, as a trombonist in middle school, that I really started to get clued in on on compositional voices and composers' voices. And then by the time I was in high school, by the time Jurassic Park and Schindler's List came out. You, you kind of go back into your memory and you realize, oh, wow, John Williams is responsible for so much of what I love about film music and, you know, Star Wars and E.T. And you really start to hear the sound come into play. And, you know, it's funny because of the fact that I have actually, I haven't had a chance to meet John Williams, but I had the chance to be in the same area as him when I was in the Atlanta Olympic band in 96 and we were involved in opening ceremonies and John Williams was there with the Atlanta symphony orchestra performing his Olympic themes. And, you know, it was funny because of the fact that like so many people were excited about, you know, all the different celebrities and stuff like that. And so many of us in the band were like, John Williams is here. John Williams is here. I'm so excited about to be in the same place as Williams. And 
I mean, by that point, though, I was basically, um, it really was that one-two punch, I think, of Jurassic Park and Schindler's List that made me really, because those were, I think, two of the first soundtrack albums I gotten of Williams. I didn't get the Star Wars, I, I think I got the Star Wars trilogy uh, CD that they did with the Skywalker Orchestra in like the late 80s, but it wasn't until the special editions came out that I really bought those albums and really started to dive into them. So, I, I mean, yeah, it was basically that one-two punch of Jurassic Park and Schindler's List just absolutely with him and Spielberg at the top of their games that year in two wildly, radically different movies, but both complete triumphs of what they're bringing to cinema. And, I mean, you know, Schindler's List, it's like I remember uh, a friend of mine and I talking about the Oscar nominations, and he was like, how could Jurassic Park not get nominated? And I'm like, well, it's because Schindler's List got nominated, and it was a just an absolutely a heartbreaking score. Um, what are... You know, it's like we've already talked a little bit about some... We've already heard some of what the most significant things um, about Williams uh, for us as far as films and uh, collaborations. What is... When it came to... As you started to get more in... If you started to get more into film music... What was it that separated that separated Williams for you, for all of you, from the pack of different composers? I mean, Grant, there are tremendous composers all around. There's Goldsmith, there's Horner, there's Zimmer, there's Korngold, there's uh, Max Steiner, so many classic great composers, Herman. Um, what is it about John Williams that for you kind of just sets him apart from the rest? I mean, it's just the the timeless quality of it, really. I mean, there there's some there's something epic and yet so I don't know what the right word is. It's just it's anything he writes is instantly classic. You know, you've got movies that are now approaching 40 years and more, more older and they don't sound dated at all, which you can't say about some film scores. Mm -hmm. But for me, uh, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So thank you. Um, for me, it's, um, you know, we all know about how he, he uses the light motif and, and gives, you know, everybody a, a theme in a lot of his films and, but also, for example, with Star Wars, especially when you're listening to a soundtrack, um, you can play the movie in your head. You know exactly, I mean, there's certain cues in some of the music and you know, it, you know, oh, that's when Luke gets his hand chopped off and you can watch the movie in your head and um, know exactly what's going on because the, the music melts with the image so well. Um, it's just like reliving the, the film by listening to the soundtrack. I do that all the time with Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Jurassic Park and, you know, E.T. and Raiders of Lost Ark and so many other. Darren, what were you about to say? Well, I really think it has to do with his themes. Like, mm -hmm. uh, it, like if you're going through your childhood and 
you know, again, you and I have talked like the first music score that I entire as it in its entirety that I in entirety that I ever fell in love with was uh, Hans Zimmer's Backdraft. And that was just from from stem to stir. And that was the score that I was like in love with every note. And that occurred to me that I love since John Williams was so uh, front and center, I think it was just because of his themes. Like you had the Raiders theme, you had the Star Wars uh, theme, you had, uh, you know, E.T., you had, like I said, Jaws, you had all these scores that you can just easily identify just from that theme. I think that's where he stands proud and apart. I think his earlier scores, when you listen to them now, I think they do work um, uh, like, like uh, Kelly was saying, or, you know, from, you could just tell like bits and pieces, things like that. that um, later on, I think some of his scores, they rely a little more on themes than just the background kind of music. The background music is just, it seems like just kind of filler a lot of the time, most of his later stuff. But the themes are what um, what stand out and what what makes him, because I, I could hum any of his themes. I can't hum other than the psycho theme. I can't hum a Herman score or a Steiner, you know, just from out the top of my head. And Zimmer, who's my maybe my favorite, you know, composer, I can't really hum a theme because he's not about themes. He's about setting mm-hmm. mood. John Williams is about themes and about being iconic. No other filmmaker, I'm sorry, no other composer is as iconic as he is with his themes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are so many themes and even these uh, films that are quote-unquote lesser, even though uh, I enjoyed 1941. I mean, that theme is yeah. one of his best marches and you cannot argue that differently i mean it's so catchy even when i saw the film earlier this year like it was still playing in my head afterwards spielberg loves that theme i think he's done on record mm-hmm. yeah yeah and even if you listen to i mean 1941 really does bring up a uh, an excellent point even if you feel like the movie itself is not a huge success um, or even if it is something that kind of falls off of the radar when it come when a lot of people think of Spielberg and Williams in particular, if you want to go with that collaboration, I mean, you know, you you listen once you listen again to something like Empire of the Sun, there's something that pushes that into your memory. I mean, there are going to be scores that I bring up that I love in terms of their collaboration that I abs their their moments have stayed with me ever since I uh first listened to those scores. And I mean, you know, while my favorite arguably, even though it's not necessarily his most memorable for E.T., my favorite is a movie that uh Darren, I know you and I both adore is AI. And yeah. I love how Jess's Spielberg challenged himself to do something very, uh, you know, very Kubrickian in a way with that film. You know, he obviously can't necessarily get away from his nature as somebody who's able to make a sentimental film. I, I think John Williams <laughs> is really the anchor that helps him do that. And I mean, something like Monica's theme is just absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Let's be honest, that was a Kubrick film to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, even something, you know, something like Lincoln, I think, has a 
powerful central theme to it. I, I think I was watching the post last year in preparation for Spielberg discussion, and I forgot, in, even if nothing in the post necessarily speaks to the strong thematic connection that we have with Williams, the way his music works in that film just drives the action in a way that only the best composers can really come up with. Yeah, I know you were, someone mentioned, um, like, even his less, even lesser films that have his music are still memorable. The one that comes to my mind is Space Camp. Uh -huh. His music, yeah. yeah, his music, his music makes that movie. Um, and and it's what I always remember about it, particularly when the when the shuttle launches. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, even when you're watching a sequel, even even when you're watching something like, uh, you know, Superman four, like his theme. <laughs> connects you to that character as cheesy as the movie is oh yeah his his theme <laughs> still works on you as as a member of the audience because of the fact that it's just such a powerful hook and it's going to what we're talking about in terms of his use of theme and leap motif it's just i mean he's I don't think there's a composer around. I mean, I, I disagree with Darren to a certain extent because I could, like, outside of Psycho, there are probably a few other Herman themes that I could really think of and, you know, hum to a certain extent, like North by Northwest and Vertigo. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, it it's nothing compared to John Williams, heck, just in Star Wars alone. You've got half a dozen in the original trilogy. You've got ha another half a dozen in the prequels, and then there are a few more that come out in the sequels. And, I mean, he he's just somebody who is always... He understands what... He understands what type of music I think the films need, and even if it's not great, and even if it's not a great movie, you're able to connect with it musically even if we don't necessarily connect with the story that we're watching mm -hmm. I, I think he understands character like brian you mentioned superman it's not just the the music that does it it's christopher reeve that does it too christopher reeve is just as tied to that character and it's it when i see christopher reeve i hear the superman music and it's the same thing with you know uh, luke's theme or like you said the shark or anything like that or or indie it's like it you don't just identify with the movie and just doesn't make you think of a movie. It makes you think of a specific character. Mm -hmm. um, I, don't, I don't know if that makes sense. So I don't know if uh, um, we could make arguments all day, but like, again, I think he's strongest as far as that goes. I, I can't think of another composer that has that strong a tie to actual themes for his individual, or like you said, light motifs to his actual characters. Yeah, like I was listening to the Dial of Destiny uh, soundtrack just by itself and he incorporates that like at parts of the Raiders March uh, throughout the film and then of course there's that moment where even if we don't see Marion on screen all Indy has to do is mention her name and there goes uh, Marion's uh, theme on the score. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah and I I um 
I get like a visceral reaction anytime I listen to like certain, certain themes. I mean, I don't know if anybody else gets chills when they Mm. listen to certain themes, but it's like, I get the goosebumps on my arm and you know, it's, it's, I don't know. He just connects to something in, inside that, um, you know, I, I've had it with some other, I mean, I, I love James Horner. Hans Zimmer's got some real, real great scores. Um, but uh, John Williams just does something special that just, it, it affects me on a cellular level. It's primal. His music is primal, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if any, any other composer has that strong connection with me. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, um, no, I mean, even, you know, one of the things is it's like even even when we've heard other composers kind of work in his, in franchises that he has worked in, like Star Wars, like Harry Potter, you can tell that that William, the original ideas that Williams came up with for those franchises are influencing the composers that are now working in that franchise. I mean, you know, you hear it in some of the things that Gornson's done for The Mandalorian. You listen to some of the things that Nally Holt did for Obi-Wan. You listen to some of the things that John Powell did in Solo, and then you listen to the other composers from uh, the Harry Potter franchise, and they always have to go... They always end up going back to that Hogwarts, that... Uh, Hedwig's theme and some of the ideas that and some of the tones that Williams established with those first three scores and it's just absolutely um, it's it, it's something that you know when it was always for a lot of people it was always like well what's going to happen to these franchises if Williams isn't there to compose for him it's like well, great composers will make it, will will do their own thing, but they won't forget what he did. Because, I mean, he's he's arguably one, he's easily one of the most respected film music voices in history. I would think that people would riot <laughs> if these, if these composers didn't incorporate those themes. But they're, they're allowed to play in the same sandbox. Like Star Wars has a sonic sound. Um, I think Giacchino's score for Rogue One is just a wonderful score. It sounds yeah. very Star Wars. If you told me it was John Williams composer, I'd be like, sure, like it's, it sounds that great. But yeah, you have to tie in all those other themes. And yeah. Again, it's that, that primal connection that Kelly was talking about. Yeah, I, I was originally worried about how the music in Star Wars might do whenever he decided to retire from it, but so worried anymore especially not after several seasons of the mandalorian they've they've got the feel of it down all right yeah it's also very much its own thing it doesn't Mm -hmm. yeah it it sounds like the mandalorian it doesn't just sound like empire return of the jedi it sounds star wars but it's its own i don't know it's it's hard to explain but i think that's very uh deft oh yeah yeah yeah, and I mean, you you brought up uh, Giancino's score for Rogue One, which I I absolutely adore in a large part because of how much it really ties into the sound for A New Hope, which is is funny because even though it's part of the same franchise, really does kind of sound unlike anything else he's done in the Star Wars saga, 
because it was first and because when it came to Empire and everything else, he's building off of, he's not only building off of A New Hope, but he's expanding it in ways that he probably did not, he probably didn't necessarily think about the first time around. And I mean, you know, I, I love some, there are so many of his scores for follow-ups that I absolutely adore. And another one is uh, The Lost World, which mm. I, I wouldn't say is a better score than Jurassic Park, but I think there are, there are moments of it that I absolutely get excited to listen to. Even the silly San Diego sequence <laughs> at the end has a tremendous score to it, and it sounds... And a big part of it is because of the fact that he's leaning into that silliness of... King Kong of Godzilla of just a monster rampaging on cities, and I I love that. But I also love the uh, scene where they're trying to get to the outposts and the raptors are chasing them too. There's so many great moments that he he's he he's kind of going with where each film takes him, but he's also expanding on what came before, and I love that. There's nothing silly about a T-Rex wrecking havoc on San Diego. It's a warning of what can happen when man <laughs> tries to play God. Well, yes, of course. That's the overall theme of the entire <laughs> Jurassic Park series. Uh, evidently, and even though you know dinosaurs seem to take a back seat for it in uh, extinction in uh, the last one, but uh, you and I already talked about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And let's not talk about it again. <laughs> say so. <laughs> but no, I mean, I what I was going to say with G. Chino's, I mean, you know, even even with G. Chino, you you think about. Uh, I I also think about his music for Super Eight, which was very much Spielberg inspired by Abrams. I mean, even even in that movie, G. Chino is very much leaning into the type of sound that. He, Williams brought to those early se late seventies, early eighties films that Spielberg made. But yeah, I, I think it's always fun with Giacchino. Like he's an exciting composer because when he dips his toes into like Cloverfield, is a very his his one theme that he has for that is very uh, Ifukube. I think that's pronouncing it for the. It's very Godzilla esque. Um, you have. Uh, obviously Star Wars kind of dips in there. A Mission Impossible had some fun stuff to it, but then he's also very unique with like Up and all of his other original scores. Yeah. But I think uh, maybe the weakest Giacchino score is oddly enough is Jurassic World. Cause I don't know if that has a super strong theme. It, it relies a lot on the Jurassic Park theme as opposed mm -hmm. to being something different. Yeah. Which I mean, given what Jurassic World was doing, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think just as a list, as separate listen, it's maybe not as strong as some others. Oh yeah. When your main setting in uh, Jurassic World is at Isla Nublar, you're gonna have to incorporate all those previous uh, themes that have to do with the island, right? For the park itself, like as I mean, Welcome to the Park is, I believe, uh, one of the cues on the uh, soundtrack, and that incorporated the main themes of the original film. Mm -hmm. yeah, Very the, legacy sequel of it, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, what, 
Yeah, it, it was it was basically a, a straight up rendition of the iconic Jurassic Park theme, which I loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wake up to it every day. Must <laughs> I choose to sleep in and wake up with Raiders or Back to the Future Three? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like a little awe and wonder to get your day started on the right foot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously his uh, obviously his most famous collaboration with a uh, filmmaker Spielberg. It's the longest running collaboration that either of them have had. But there are a handful of scores that he has not done for Spielberg, and I was kind of curious if anybody has any ideas, any thoughts on the scores for Spielberg that were not Williams which include Twilight Zone, the movie, which was scored by Jerry Goldsmith, Color Purple, which was scored by Quincy Jones, Bridge of Spies, which was scored by uh, Thomas Newman, and then Ray Player One, which was scored by Alan Silvestri. And West Side Story was uh, arranged by David Newman. Yes, that's correct. Didn't Williams consult on that one, though? I think he did, yeah. Yeah, he was in the credits. Yeah. Yeah, I was looking at that in the uh, on his IMDb credits and music department. Yeah, I, I I forgot about the fact that he did collaborate with that. But I mean, obviously the the music is Bernstein. So um. yeah. Well, Williams adapted the Fiddler on the Roof score, right? So you mm-hmm. he's got some experience with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's what he got his first Oscar for. Yep. Yeah. And a great score at that to uh, win one. Mm-hmm. I um I'm not as familiar with like the, the scores for Color Purple um or the other ones except for Ready Player One, which I really enjoyed. And I, yeah. I mean I actually even enjoyed the movie. And I I know a lot of people didn't, but I I know it uh, deviated from the book quite a bit. But I mean a lot of the book probably wouldn't have been nearly as interesting to watch visually. Um, that book is is, the, is excruciating for me to read. It just seems like a list. <laughs> it just seems like he's just sitting there writing just a list of his favorite things. I'm like, I get it, man. Well, I just I just read Ready Player Two just because, and it Ready Player One is a lot better than Ready Player Two. So. Yes, yes. <laughs> but but I enjoyed the score. I I mean I I like uh, a lot of Alan Silvestri stuff, most mm. notably, of course, Back Back to the Future, but. Yeah. Well, that scores. I thought it fit. It's nostalgic, right? The whole movie's about nostalgia, and so there's a lot of Back to the Future kind of references in there, and so I think it it works. It's it's the most Williams esque score of the non Williams scores. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I agree. I I like the score for Ready Player One, but it just kills me knowing we could have had Williams do it. Mm-hmm. it. It just kills me. I wanted to hear his take on that so bad. Yeah. Yeah, and then Spielberg decided he wanted uh, he wanted Williams more on the post than uh, than Ready Player One, so that's why he brought in Sylvester, who I think was a good choice because I mean honestly, because so much of it is rooted in eighties nostalgia, and obviously because uh, the main character drives the ma- the DeLorean from Back to the Future, and it <laughs> having Sylvester do the scores uh, is it makes a lot of sense. Um, did you almost say he drove a Mandalorian? Yes, I did almost say that. I, I did almost say that. I, I Not tried to catch myself. I, I tried to catch 
that that would be weird. That would be an even weirder movie. But um, <laughs> no, I I don't. I, I don't mean to turn this into a Spielberg <laughs> podcast or yeah. a roundtable discussion, but it's interesting because I, I the scores like the Bridge of Spies score, the the um, Color Purple score, they're not as memorable. Like we said, they're not as primal. They don't tap into that. Uh, Spielberg isn't relying so much on Williams, which I think is, could be a crux in a certain way. I think it makes him when when you watch those movies, you concentrate more on the visuals and the storytelling as opposed to the music, and you and you think. You know, how is Spielberg telling the story without Williams there to help him out? I just, you know, there's the pushback with Janusz Kaminski. It's like, okay, you need to work with some other uh, cinematographer because all your movies look the same and maybe venture out. So it's more, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that a lot of the time. Maybe for Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, they could have used a different one. But I like the idea of Spielberg kind of going outside of his comfort zone. So he's not falling back too much on Williams as his, uh, uh, you know, ambiance. Yeah. I mean, I will say, I think for the color purple, I think it was because Quincy Jones was also producer of that. Like he, that was one of the things he said was, I also want to write the score for it. And it's, it's a really lovely score, but yeah, I mean, it, it definitely does not have the same, type of sound that Williams will brought to it. And I mean, obviously it's interesting to see, to wonder what Williams will brought. I, I think Bridge of Spies is probably the one where it's like, it would have been nice to hear what he will have done to that. But I, I, there are also things I like about Thomas Newman's score. And I, I thought it was a really interesting choice for him to go with, uh, to bring Newman in on that with, who also has a very distinctive sound to it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's funny because of the fact that, like, one of the, again, like I said, one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode was because of the fact that it sort of seemed like Williams might retire after Fablemans and Dial of Destiny, but he, apparently, it's been walked back a little bit, and, but, you know, you obviously are left wondering, well, what, do you, is there a specific composer do you think that Spielberg would go to if Williams did retire or, you know, when Williams passes on? Or don't say that. Don't say that. I, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't I know. speak that. We don't speak of that. We don't speak of that. Okay. John Williams is eternal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, or do you think he would continue going with just a variety of composers that, you know, he, he kind of feels like would be a good fit for that particular project? I mean, I think that's the most likely outcome because no offense to all the other composers, no one stands out the way John Williams does. I mean, mm-hmm. there, are, there are many I like for various reasons, but John Williams is like all of those reasons combined into one. So I, I could be wrong, but I can't see Spielberg relying on just one composer so exclusively as he has with John Williams. That, that That's something very special that's been happening yeah i um i know james cameron used to uh primarily have like a really great collaboration with um james horner but i would have loved to have seen what james horner could have done with a, a spielberg movie um i think that would have been a really interesting and i mean and he kind of did because he spielberg executive produced an american tale and james horner did the music for that which when i was a kid 
I mean, and I still do. I mean, I have a plush Bible on my bookshelf right now. I love an American tale. And um, so I, I think James Horner may, had he lived, um, may have been a really great um, heir to, to John Williams, but we'll never know. Yeah, I don't know the production history of why Spielberg went to, because when he doesn't use John Williams, he hasn't used just one particular composer, right? He's gone to different composers each time. I don't know if it's because somebody just was, that was the first person available or he specifically chose that person. Um, I do agree that Horner would have been good. I think, like I said, Silvestri is probably the most Spielbergian of all the composers right right now, especially since Zemeckis. We tie Silvestri with Zemeckis so much. Mm -hmm. And I think because Zemeckis is tied to Spielberg, that would work. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I don't know, I, I kind of agree. I like the idea of him going to different composers and see what works, but it goes back to that thought of, why doesn't he do that with uh, different uh, cinematographers, get a yeah. different feel each time? Because when you have Kaminsky doing the same cinematography, but a different uh, composer, it's, it's weird. It's like, well, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'd like a different look to the movie as well if you have a different sound. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. I mean, especially because of the fact that, I mean, being a visual medium, I mean, the, the images and how the music plays into those images make is so ingrained in what our experience is with that movie. It, it definitely, I, I definitely understand what you're saying with that. Um, you know, and it's funny because you and I talked last year, talked about uh, Hans Zimmer, Darren. I mean, I remember in the mid nineties when it was after uh, Zimmer's score for Crimson Tide, where he said like, if it wasn't for my collaboration with John yep. Williams, I would pick Hans Zimmer. And I mean, Hans Zimmer ended up being the uh, music director for uh, DreamWorks uh, when when that studio came up. But, um, you know, the thing is, it's like given the type of uh, music that Zimmer does, it's hard to imagine what type of movie Spielberg would do where Zimmer's, Zimmer's typical approach would work. And I mean, it's it's really just you know it's it's really one of those things where it's like you you just don't know. But um, what are some of without taking uh, taking Spielberg and uh, Star Wars off the table? What are some of everybody's favorite uh, John Williams scores? So, so non-Spielbergian films. And non-Star oh, Wars. No, Star Wars. Raiders, dang it. I, I've got some. I've got some. I like, um, I love Far and Away. Yeah. Um, I, I just, in fact, I, I, I actually really like that movie. Again, I know that's not like one of the most popular ones, but I, I love it. And um, I'm with I, you, Kelly. I like that movie. I, I actually fell in love with the music before I even realized John Williams wrote it because I kept catching it on TV and I'd miss like the very beginning or whatever. And I'm like, John Williams wrote this. No wonder I love it. And then I love, um, I, I mean, I know Spielberg was a producer, but I love Memoirs of Acacia. Um, yeah. And those are just, yeah, I could probably come up with others, but. Well, if you take out uh, Spielberg uh, and George and Star Wars, uh, Fiddler on the Roof, Home Alone, and his uh, Olympic themes. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are amazing. Yeah. If I ab- yeah, if I absolutely have to put Spielberg aside, and oh, 
tells me to do that. <laughs> um, and the rest of it. Yeah. The, then, I would, then I would probably have to gravitate toward his score for Superman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I There are days I will just listen to the Superman march on repeat just because I can't get enough <laughs> of how it it's just a perfect theme. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, it, I mean, it's mind boggling. We think like that was came out in 78 and it wasn't until man of steel that someone stopped citing it in a score. Yeah. <laughs> but then they ended up doing it anyway. With the other movie. <laughs> <laughs> I agree that Superman, that was probably my top one. I think it's so they had to do that. I mean, you, you Audiences weren't really getting a connection to the DCU Superman, so they had to bring John Williams' theme into it, which you just hear briefly, but they yeah. still do it. As far as you know, even up to Black Adam when it comes out, you just hear the Superman, the John Williams' yeah. theme, but it's like, yeah. but that isn't John Williams' Superman. Why are we listening to this one? But uh, I, I like his, uh, for Mark Rydell, he had a couple good ones. I like the Ravers. I hope I'm dancing that right. I like the Cowboys. I think that's a really fun score. Um, the Harry Potters, obviously. I think that um, well, maybe we'll talk about it in a little bit. But the Prisoner of Azkaban is just one of my favorites as yeah. far as him going outside of his comfort. I think with the first two Harry Potters, it's Chris Columbus going, "Okay, I've got John Williams. He can just do whatever he wants, mm-hmm. right? And, and I'll just let him do it." And there's no real pushback or no real, real kind of you know tightening on him and saying, "I need you to do something different and, and go outside of what you usually do." Um, so I don't know. That's that might be something to do. Uh, Heartbeats had a fun. That's a terrible movie, but Heartbeats <laughs> has a fun score. I remember uh, that movie. Yeah, yeah. It was, it's weird. Not again. Not a great movie. Uh, Witches of Eastwick has a fun theme. Again, I'm, I'm mostly going on themes, but you know, he's he's got presumed innocent. I could just go down this list of all these things. JFK is yeah. a great one. JFK is interesting because we, I think, famously he just wrote themes and he mm-hmm. didn't have time because he was scoring something else um and so uh, oliver stone just used kind of ch- chopped up those those cues that he wrote and used yeah. them throughout which kind of helps the movie since it is kind mm-hmm. of that yeah uh, frenetic kind of feel but yeah he's got a lot of we could just go through the list and just name all these all these scores i think they're just very strong even the patriot for emmerich has a good oh yeah. yeah yeah and and seven years in tibet's got a really yeah. great score mm-hmm. yeah he helped uh pave the way for all the disaster thrillers uh the Cyan Adventure, Earthquake, right. Towering Inferno. Yep. Mm-hmm. You did the score for Hitchcock's final feature, Family Plot. Yeah. Right. I, I think the thing is, is Williams is so strong. It's it's not just tied to Spielberg. I mean, I know we all have a hard time because that's what we're mostly connecting to. and We can't talk about it. Thanks yeah. for that, Brian. But <laughs> he is equally strong in these other movies, and they, they do help him out, even though, you know, Home Alone, another great score like Danielle was talking about. Like, that's wow. some of the best Christmas music yeah, ever. It yeah. It's like we don't realize Spielberg's influence. We don't realize uh, or credit Williams' influence enough on the movies we watch today. Yeah. I'm I'm looking at his uh, 70s work, and I, I need to watch the long goodbye again, the Altman film, to really <laughs> tie in, to really hone in on Williams' score because of the fact that for some reason it didn't connect with me that that was Williams the first time I saw it. So I, I need to I need to watch that again. But yeah, I mean, like like you said, Darren. I mean, JFK is one I absolutely adore. Um, yeah, I mean, I it Home Alone, of course. I mean, it 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 is funny that that movie is. I I think 
to to uh, to the point that was made. It really is as definitive of Christmas music as I think anybody's ever done in in a film. I I think that's and you can't really think about it without thinking of Christmas. And I I think that's something just absolutely extraordinary. But yeah, the Patriot, um, the, what he did for the Patriots, like you know. The fact that he was able to make something that grand and uh, also that that connected to the emotions that Roland Emmerich was trying to do in that movie is actually kind of striking when you consider the type of filmmaker Roland Emmerich usually is. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I adore his Prisoner of Azkaban. There are some cues in that movie that are just absolutely just astounding for... Uh, Williams. So, um, let's see. Uh, what else did I want to discuss? Yeah, I, 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 I wanted to put that out there because of the fact that I wanted, I wanted people, I wanted to challenge people because so much of his iconic work is because of Star Wars, because of Spielberg. Um, but yeah. It's 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 important to give credit to the fact that he's he's done tremendous work apart from uh, those main collaborations. So, um, that's you think people are like, I, I'd like to get John Williams for this score, but I know he's probably busy with Spielberg or Star Wars, <laughs> and so they just never bothered asking him, and that's why he's tied so strongly with them. Well, I, and it's funny because of the fact that I mean, yeah, he has some credits. He he has various credits for in the past decade or two year basketball yeah but well, the, and the book the book thief i think is the last feature film when i just looked that is not star wars it's not indiana jones it's not spielberg yeah that's what i was well, getting at was a while ago. yeah that was that was 2013 ago. yeah but yeah, I mean, I, I think at this point, I mean, I'm sure part of it is age because, I mean, even in uh, 2002 when he, became, when he turned uh, 70, I mean, when he had four scores that year, I mean, you know, he had William Ross uh, adapting his music for in collaboration on Chamber of Secrets. I mean, if you listen to some of the stuff on Geonosis and Attack of the Clones, it it's very obvious that they're just picking and choosing themes to go into that moment in some of those moments that are not how that that moment would have been scored. And so, and, but I mean, you also listen to Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can is two Spielberg collaborations that year, and they were fully realized musical visions to go with the films that Spielberg made. 2002 is interesting. Just like you said, he went to Ross for, I know he wrote the, um, there's a Phoenix theme and he wrote a separate theme, but then yeah. you look at Williams credits, he conducts all his own scores. And that mm -hmm. one obviously is not conducted by him. He just wrote some stuff and then just had Ross like redo, like reuse the scores. And I think that's, in a way, it's a lazy score because it's just doing stuff that we've heard before. Same thing with Attack of the Clones. I know that the uh, you mentioned the Geonosis thing. The, the factory scene was a reshoot. They went back and had to add something. So maybe they didn't have time to put that in there. But then there are also cues 
I don't know the name of the cube, but you, we first hear it in uh, Phantom Menace when they're escaping uh, Coruscant. And there's a theme that plays, and it plays again later during the podcast race, but then in Attack of the Clones, they use it a couple times. And I'm like, why are you just reusing a cue, the exact same cue from the that other movie? It's just, it was just strange. And then Catch Me If You Can and Minority Report were just completely original works that didn't have to tie back to something that had done previously. I, I will say uh, I, I have issues with the uh, pod race, but you just called it a podcast race, and I'm not quite <laughs> oh, sure. Oh, what whatever. I'm not. I mean, Grant, <laughs> I, 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 I think the uh, I, I do think the pod race to a certain extent has not aged well in terms of uh, how how exciting it is. But uh, no. I, but I, I think that's going to. Really? I, I think that's going to. I think that's going to bridge too far. Um, no, 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 like I, I, I need you to elaborate on this because I'm genuinely curious to know. What is a podcast race? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if we all have like an episode, since we all have our own stuff, if we had like our own episode, we need to get out of Monday. Maybe the race is who gets theirs out first. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's more interesting than probably most stuff that happens in Phantom Menace. <laughs> but, but no, you. You just said the pod race had an age well, and I was just curious what you meant. I, it's oh, boring. Um, yeah, I, I'm. <laughs> I, the more I've seen, the more I've seen it over the past few years, the more I, I kind of feel like it's, it's not as, it's not as exciting as it probably should be. And I think part of it is because of the fact that so much of it is very obviously, well, obviously, Anakin is going to win, but. I do think to a certain extent the lack of score in that sequence the more you watch it the the lack of score really does show and the fact that the score does not come into place until the very end when things really get intense really does play a part in that Plus, I am I yeah. I'm sorry yeah, I, I, want, I want to add my two cents too but you can go no, ahead. I've got to add something <laughs> okay. I agree with that, and and I feel like when you I watch the pod pod race um, podcast race yeah. <laughs> podcast race, but um, it feels like an extended like video game yeah scene. But um, but I kind of try to compare it to the the trench battle in A New Hope because it's 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 there's a lot at stake. You know, um, it's a kind of a pivotal moment. But with the trench battle, we have we have really great cuts and. And the tension, and even after having seen it a hundred times, I still feel that tension because of the score. And with the pod race, the um, you hear the, the the engines and the sounds of of the pod racers, and and there's not a lot of dialogue either. The trench mm-hmm. battle has some great dialogue, even if it's like short, you know, stay on target, stay on target, you know, just little things. But it it really brings you into these these different people that you may have never even met before. But you're still emotionally invested, and the pod race, you just really care about Anakin, and um, and yeah, you know he's gonna win and survive and everything because he becomes Darth Vader, and there's there's just no tension in that scene, really. Yeah, I mean, the pod race is largely driven by the work of the uh, sound team doing all the sound effects editing. Yeah, and it's not to take anything and away, when you, and when you. Let me finish. And when you have the sound team being busy on that front, it's hard to find places for a score. I mean, look at the beginning of uh, Saving Private Ryan with all the uh, shooting and everything. I mean, it's hard to find a place for a score in those parts. Mm -hmm. 
I would also say, sorry, again, we don't want to turn this into the pod race uh, <laughs> episode of Sonic <laughs> Cinema, but as an audio visual experience, I think the pod race is terrific. I think just out of context, I think it's great. The problem is that, yeah, it doesn't have that score, but then it's also um, like Kelly was getting at, there's no dramatic stakes. Like Lucas compared it to, oh, I'm doing the chariot race from Ben Hur. But yeah. it's like, yeah, but. In that one, you had Judah Ben-Hur against Masala, and there was, like, a whole history of their, like, them going at each other and their their conflict. And in this one, they're just racing so that they can get a part for their ship so they can get off the stupid planet. There's no emotional connection to anything that's happening as strong mm-hmm. as that. I think that's the that's the main problem, is, is I think they work as technical exercises, the prequels, but there's just something missing as far as dramatic stakes. And there are parts of those the prequels where Williams is just, you can tell he's really trying to put in a music score to kind of paper over a lot of the weaker aspects of it. Yeah. So that maybe you don't notice the storytelling. But yeah, just just very just, what's the word I'm looking for? Just dan- Just dull. Across the Stars is amazing. Yeah, that's a good one. The, his theme, Duel of the Fates, is probably my second favorite Star Wars theme. But again, it's just the theme. It's not really so much um, the other stuff going on. Mm-hmm. There. It's just we have to rely on Williams in those movies for a lot of the band-aiding. Yeah, and I definitely don't want to take anything away from Ben Burt's amazing sound design in the Padre sequence because I, if you had asked me in 1999, 2000, what should have won Best Sound Editing, I will very much said Fan Maz. And to a certain extent, yeah. I still believe that. Um, you know, I, I definitely, you know, now I, I understand why Matrix won for sound. I understand why it won for visual effects. I still would have liked to have seen Fan Maz win Best Sound Editing that year because of the fact that it's just such, that sequence is such a tour de force. And the fact that we're hearing new sounds in Star Wars for the first time in 20 plus years. And I I think he did a tremendous job, but yeah, that, that sequence in the long run, it, it just doesn't connect with me. But I mean, I do think Fan Menace is probably my favorite of the prequel trilogy scores. I think Williams does some tremendous yeah. work. I love Anakin's theme. I love Duel of the Fates. One of my favorite pieces of music in any Star Wars film is when Anakin is saying goodbye to his mother. And it's it's Williams, really, and it's one of the few times where I feel like the performances are working as well as the score is to connect with, to connect us emotionally with that movie. Well, I, I also think it, it still ties back that it's Williams doing the work that Lucas is not doing, yeah. <laughs> you, you know? And so you, you need somebody like Williams to be able to do that. And I agree that Pernilla August, and maybe that's the one scene in the whole movie, but I'm not like, really Jake Lloyd, this is the kid you went with. I think he's fine yeah. just in that scene. But again, it's that emotional connection that we have to him and his, and his mom. Yeah. And there's, there's no other real emotional connection in it. Even when uh, Qui-Gon dies at the end, you don't really feel it as much as when uh, Anakin says goodbye to Shmi. No, and it wasn't helped because of the fact that that was spoiled on the uh, soundtrack credits so uh, three weeks ago, be- <laughs> three weeks before the movie came out. Um, <laughs> it was spoiled. Yeah. So sure. mad. But um, what, I mean, we've already, we've already touched on some of uh, our favorite Williams scores. We've already touched on some of our Will- favorite Williams cues bringing Star Wars and Spielberg back into the equation, 
what are what are some of our some of everybody's favorite uh, soundtracks of Williams? What are your favorite soundtracks of Williams? The ones you absolutely feel like you can't necessarily live without. And if there's particular uh, pieces of music from them, uh, what are they? Oh, this is not <laughs> an easy answer. I feel like the, I, I feel like the answer is going to be longer than the rest of the podcast. <laughs> but uh, for if me, we did a top thirty-five, it would have been. <laughs> no, for me, I mean, you've got the Jurassic Park soundtrack. Hmm. I mean, you've got the classic themes from the 80s stuff, I mean, with Star Wars, Empire, Return of the Jedi, all three Indiana Jones movies in the 80s. The other two have some things on there, too. Yeah. Hook has a memorable theme. He has a memorable uh, score. Hook is a great score. Hook is a gorgeous score. Yeah, in fact, uh, I was watching something, and it's like I felt that they made a callback to it and I'm like wait they just play hook I'm not sure if they did or didn't or maybe it was my ears playing tricks on me let's see what else uh, you can hear a lot of hook in Harry Potter well like there's, that's there's a, a lot franchise that. that's a franchise that I will not touch I avoid it like the plague <laughs> and when I say like the plague I'm not talking about the people that say they avoid it like the plague and then did whatever during COVID but I avoid it like the like yeah and that goes back to trauma during opening weekends <laughs> uh but yeah i mean it's really star wars india jones jurassic park the ones that are like the major standouts for me i mean et close encounters jaws i mean <laughs> the the list goes on and on which is why i did the earlier question. <laughs> because it's so easy to just go into Star Wars and Spielberg. Uh, Kelly, what about you? Oh, I um, I mean, I love all all nine of the Star Wars films. Mm-hmm. Um, they each have some really great. I mean, Ray's theme is amazing. I love it. Um, I I definitely prefer uh, the first three Indiana Jones movies. Um, a lot of times, I I tend to lean towards Last Crusade. Um, I really love the, the Sherzo for motorcycle. Um, it's just got some really beautiful music. Um, yeah. uh, the Grail Quest at the end, I mean, Leap of uh, Faith and everything, that that whole cue when when he throws the rocks and, and reveals the, the walkway is just beautiful. Um, I love Hook. I listen to it all the time. Um, E.T., I... Um, I love the Close Encounters theme, but I don't listen to the soundtrack as a whole all the time. Yeah. Kind of yeah. kind of the same with Jaws, but I think Jaws has a lot more really great, memorable, individual mm-hmm. um, pieces. And um, I actually really love Home Alone. I listen to it. I have like a John Williams Christmas Pandora station that I listen to at Christmas time. <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, gosh... And I really love Schindler's List. It's not one I can listen to a whole lot, but um, sometimes if I'm just in a mood, I just want to listen to that beautiful melancholy music and, and it's that Perlman. So, um, I, I mean, and of course, I, I don't know if I mentioned Jurassic Park, but that uh, that's amazing. 
I just, I love the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, Becky, what about you? Uh, it's gonna be a lot of what's already been mentioned. Um, for sure, at the top of my Williams list will always be the nine saga films. Um, especially since Rise of Skywalker came out, I've tended to view it all as like one large musical magnum opus um, that I'll just dip into at will because um, I love listening to all of it. I have all the soundtracks and I'll listen to them for days when the mood hits me because um, it's just so... It's To me, it's very... The, the way Williams wrote Star Wars, it's very much like opera to me. Yeah. Um, ever since I first heard that comparison in college, th- that has stuck, and I will probably think of it that way for the rest of my life. Um, but when I'm not obsessing with Williams and Star Wars, I'm definitely listening to the Raiders soundtrack, um, a- of which my favorite part is probably the map room at dawn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I I don't think people talk about that scene enough because the music tells the entire story. Harrison Ford does not say a word. Mm-hmm. And the, the the level of music you have to be writing at to achieve that is not all composers can do that. And a lesser composer would have botched that scene completely. And um, I don't really... I'm also ashamed to say I don't listen to much beyond that. Um, I do love The Last Crusade, but please don't hate me. I am not into Temple of Doom. I mean, that's that's fair, but I will say I, I think William's score for Temple of Doom is pretty terrific. Uh, I, I think there's, especially when it gets into the adventure uh, in the second half of the movie, I, I think it gets, I think there are some tremendous themes yeah. and adventure cues that come out of it yeah it's not i mean it's nothing against the music and i really should give it another try outside of the film but the film itself i can't watch it um but but parts of it are just not for me and i'm sure you know which parts i'm talking about Mm -hmm. (laughs) but um but but outside of i mean it's really the williams ones i listen to most are star wars and and the 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 first couple indiana jones films although i am definitely going to be adding dial of destiny to my rotation that was some good stuff yeah we'll touch on dial of destiny a little bit uh after uh after this section because i do want to talk about um that one and uh i i do want to talk about a, a couple of his later year ones uh in in a bit more of a centered uh area darren what about you well sorry if this kind of breaks trish with everybody else's time but i i wrote down like five of my five favorite scores we could do like brian i think you were telling me that you did like a top 10 we could do a top yeah. 20 we could do top 50 <laughs> all these scores we were mentioning have at least a very strong theme angela's ashes even has a very strong theme but that's williams for you right but if i was gonna like just going in uh release order i think jaws like i said is just very the the thing with jaws and star wars and the reason that those scores still stand out today is because they broke their traditions Spielberg and lucas of going with the 70s woodwinds <laughs> typical yeah. music score that we heard all the time and they went full orchestral and that's what makes those scores stand so strong today star wars would not be star wars without the williams music it's the same thing with jaws it's got some really great themes the, the man without man against beast is my favorite cue because it's not 
with Jaws, I struggle because sometimes I think, is it a horror movie or is it an adventure movie? Because the Man Against Beast, when they're chasing after the shark, yeah. it's very much corn gold. It's like an ad- rousing adventure. And the music, and it's so exciting. It's not scary. It's just very, you know, nature. And it's, you know, you're, you're hunting and all that. And so, yeah, obviously the shark theme is iconic. Next one is Superman. I don't know. Uh, prologue and main title is my favorite. The, it has probably my favorite opening title sequence of all time. I don't think anybody has ever scored a superhero movie like John Williams has scored Superman. It's just a very epic, giant score that all these others, even Danny Elfman's Batman, doesn't quite have because mm-hmm. it's very idiosyncratic. Superman is just, and that's one of the things I think Pauline Kael pushed against because she's like, well, this is a comic book movie. Why does it have this giant epic score? This doesn't fit. But that's why Superman makes such an impression. The, the score, the theme even says the word Superman, if you listen to it. And then it's got like uh, the Otis theme. It's got obviously the, the love theme mm-hmm. uh, with Lois. So just, just again, very strong score. Uh, after that, I think my favorite of his scores of all time has to be Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Just because we saw that, um, we saw it play with an orchestra. The Utah Symphony played Empire Strikes Back, a company with their, you know, playing and just... I think those musicians had to take a, a break and had to towel <laughs> off like halfway through that movie because it's constant music and it's not just noise. He wrote how many new themes yeah. for Empire Strikes Back? The yeah. Yoda theme, the love theme between Han and Leia. He's got a, a, a late motif for the, uh, the droids for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. And he, hyperspace has to be my favorite cue from that score because it incorporates like 12 different themes, mm-hmm. 12 different light motifs into one four minute section. It's just amazing the way that he tied all those scores in and just made it a completely new experience even though you still have the same star warsian cues for that um et is another one brian you and i and daniel talked about it. et is just so i've got such a strong personal connection to, to that just to the I and mean, we can listen to, you can listen to that episode but just the end when it's Elliot, you know, he gets his friend to the ship, gets his friend safe, and it's the only friend he's ever really had. And you have his mom just watching him. Just that whole, the departure of that cue, of just yeah. seeing him accomplish and the rainbow across, the, which, you know, like was said, that wouldn't work in a lesser movie, right? Yeah. I think, Kelly, you were talking about the, the map room. Like, with a different director, a different score, that would have been maudlin and corny, but it it makes me cry when you see that. It's like, wow, it's like, this, this is what movies should be. And it just... I don't know if any other of his scores or his cues have built to that emotional climax like E.T. builds to, mm-hmm. where I'm just wow by it. And then the, the final one, it, it's, and I know, you know, we, all these other franchises and other movies, you, it, you guys have very valid, you, you ladies have very valid reasons for maybe not wanting to watch those franchises or, or particular movies, but I... I just really like that Prisoner of Azkaban score because it's like Empire Strikes Back. There are so many new themes. Yeah. And it's uh, Quaron pushing Williams to not just do his same thing. The same way that Quaron pushed the, the three main actors to do better acting and really get into their characters instead of just assigning lines. It's the same thing with Williams. It's just an above and beyond score that's not like the first two. It's got the Buckbeak theme, the serious theme. It's, um, Sideways has a video where he talks about that. Uh, there's a like a mischief theme, like yeah. when the two brothers are giving Harry the, the map or whatever. Mm-hmm. It also, when you modify the notes, it becomes Sirius's theme because, again, Sirius was... Uh, when he was younger, he was a uh, kind of a prankster with Lily and James and and uh, 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 Lupin. And so that, that kind of ties in. It's just a very rich, very well thought out score. It's not just good music. There's also a lot of stuff going, you know, thought processes going in there. But 
yeah, just, I love it when he's pushed past his comfort level because then he's better than any other composer out there. But mm-hmm. those are, those are my five. And we could go into the, just briefly on Temple of Doom, I think that the, the best use of the Raiders theme was at the, is at the end of that movie when he's, you know, he frees the slave children and they all come running in. It's like they play the Raiders March and it just feels so heroic. Like maybe it doesn't feel like in the other movies because he's actually done a heroic thing and, and mm-hmm. freed all these kids, brought them back to it. So I don't know, just super strong stuff. If we, if we really dive into a lot of these things, it's not just about his themes. There's some all, also some very strong thought processes going into his scores. Yeah, you and I are. I you you and I are. I I feel like you and I are very much on the same page when it comes to both Spielberg and Williams because I agree with everything you said about Empire Strikes Back. I I, I think Empire Strikes Back is not just probably Williams' finest hour as a composer, which is saying something. I I think it's one of the best scores ever written. I, Ugh, I yeah, and it's it the way it expands so much on on A New Hope while also feeling like a follow-up to New Hope is just staggering. And I mean, you, and I, that, it's funny, that was the only in concert uh, for the Star Wars movies I actually missed. I, I saw New Hope, uh-huh. I saw Jedi, and I saw Force Awakens, but I missed Empire and I can kick myself for it because I, I love that score so much. And exactly what you said about Rescue from Cloud City Hyperspace, um, you know, I I love AI or artificial intelligence. We already talked about that. Monica's theme is just absolutely beautiful. JFK, I you know, to your point, yeah, it's basically just a collection of themes and, you know, Oliver Stone basically picking different places to put them, but he finds p- perfect places to put them. And, yeah. I mean, you know, it goes to, and I love the use of precaution. I love the use of, syncopated rhythm to really get to the conspiratorial looking down the rabbit hole that um, Jim Garrison does in that movie. Um, I love The Last Jedi. I love The Fan Menace. If we're talking about like my favorite scores for the sequel and prequel trilogies, but I also, there are cues in Revenge of the Sith I adore. I love the cue. I love the music when Palpatine is telling the story of Darth Plagueis. I love the story. I love the music that's playing when Padme and Anakin are looking basically across Coruscant and Anakin makes his decision to, uh, you know, to tell what he knows about, uh, to go to them taking on Palpatine. I absolutely love that. But I also love the music when Order 66 happens in Sith. I I think it's it's some of it's just a huge piece of operatic storytelling that you know you can really only get from a John Williams. I mean ET, I mean that's that's one of the you know that's that's something that has been, you know, that Darren talked about where it's like the very end of that is like an opera. Spielberg said that you know, when he was talking about William's score for that, uh, you know, Danielle brought up Saving Private Ryan and the lack of music during the D-Day sequence. One, one of the absolute favorite pieces, favorite moments I think I've got in any Spielberg film is when we're watch when, you know, the music does kick in and it's 
is going from the the Ryan that is on the beach at D-Day to the the office where all the death notices are being done and then you come up to this one woman who realizes something and you you real instinctively you know it's the fact that she realizes that all of these members of the Ryan family died and you s- see her follow through and the way the camera works the way the music works together it just is remarkable just it's a tremendous command of craft on everybody's part but i also love um Sinke's theme from amistad i you know the there's a lot of things that are very familiar with the way williams approaches that with the way spielberg approaches that story but his theme for Sinke is just absolutely beautiful and i've always loved that that theme of his um but yeah it's and then uh i mean i i absolutely adored uh the fablemans this year i i've seen the movie three times i've listened to that score so many times over the past eight eight months or so since seeing the movie and the simplicity of the use of piano as the main thematic instrument is perfect and the way he uses it, the way he bring, incorporates it with the orchestra, the way the classical pieces are used, and the way all that just ties into a collective score is just remarkable. Um, I, I absolutely love that score to the Fablemans, and in particular, Mother and Son is probably one of my favorite cues of all time. It's such a short one, and, you know, remind you know, and it really captures something profound for uh, Williams and Spielberg, I think. Um, you know, I I did want to take some time talking about Fablemans to discuss uh, if anybody had thoughts on uh, Spielberg's, on Williams' uh, most recent scores for the Fablemans and for Dial of Destiny to give people a uh, chance to uh, discuss those more than others before we uh, start to wrap up here. Well, I haven't seen the Fablemans, but I do have thoughts on the Dial of Destiny, if I can just jump into that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, um, I was, well, I was actually feeling pretty iffy about the Dial of Destiny before I heard that Williams would, in fact, be scoring it. Um and so just for that reason alone, I was like, okay, I will give it a try because I was against them making a fifth one after Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And so I went in and saw it. And f- as soon as the music started, I swear, as soon as that first beat hit, I relaxed <laughs> because, because it sounded right. It felt right. It's like, th- this is something I know. This is Indiana Jones as it should sound. And just the way he wrote it all, and he brought back Marion's theme, and he put the Raiders' March in all the right places. And it just felt right. I I, I can't think of a better way to put it than that. Um, and I loved the way he did um, the music for, oh, God. Who did, what's the name of the character Mads Mikkelsen plays? 
Oh, uh, Valor? Yeah. Yeah. Everything, everything associated with him and right when the climax starts, when they're going to go into the last act and there's the plane and the storm and the music just swells up with that. It's like, you know, he has this way of making you feel like this is the big moment. Everything hinges on this. And it was just sheer menace by that point. And I, yeah, I didn't think I would love it as much as I did, but I came out completely in love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed his callback to some of the music from uh, Last Crusade, which, I mean, kind of makes sense because of the fact that, once again, we're dealing with Nazis. And I even really and I really enjoyed the theme he wrote for Helena, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's uh, character, too. Mm-hmm. You know, even, even, if I, even if I have issues with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, um, I will say I, I still enjoyed the theme he wrote for Mutt Williams. I mean, as, as, as off as that character is from pretty much the rest of the movie, I, I still, you can still tell that John Williams has taken that character seriously as a part of the Indiana Jones franchise. And I mean, I'm, I, you know, I, I think it's interesting the way that they brought in his absence from this movie too. And it really plays into the, themes of indie being older indie really starting to you know really starting to kind of struggle with his mortality in a way that he probably didn't necessarily expect i um i really liked the dial of destiny soundtrack i i honestly don't even remember mutt's theme um from king of the crystal skull but i've only seen the movie maybe two and a half times three three maybe um because i really i really didn't um and it it pains me to say that of a Spielberg film for sure but um it just felt off I, I don't know um but the Dial of Destiny was a lot of fun and and I I definitely got the callbacks to Last Crusade and um you know Raiders even aside from the the indie uh, Raiders March but um so so that was great it, it kind of grounded it and made you realize that yes this, this is an Indiana Jones film um and Helena's theme is beautiful. Um, it's it's just lovely. Um, and I and I enjoy the Fableman soundtrack. I, I couldn't like hum any of it off the top of my head, but it it felt right for that film. Um, it's it's beautiful and poignant. Um, but but the music obviously is not the star of that film. You know, it's very much about Spielberg's life and um, you know his his memories. And so I think. Williams' music enhances it and and adds to it, but it, it's definitely not the star of that film. Um, so, uh, but yeah, yeah, I was really pleased with Dial of Destiny. I I didn't know what to expect and um, thought it was just, it, and I, I think it's great uh, standing alone um, outside of the film. Mm-hmm. Well, just to, I don't mean to. <laughs> I, I I don't mean to detract from anybody who liked Dial of Destiny or anything like that, and I've, I'll mention uh, uh, Fablemans in a sec. But the, just the the two things that bug me with the scores for Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and Dial of Destiny again, they're fine scores, like you 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 were talking about. But I'm not a fan of using cues from pre- and in sequels. It's okay, but if you're if you're going to use full on cues from a movie, it's going to make me want to watch the previous movie. If you're just going to reuse them, 
Dial of Destiny, when they're playing uh, Belly of the Steel Beast, it's just, they just play that, you know, when the, mm -hmm. the, during that first sequence. And for me, it was like, oh, so I guess this is just the Nazi theme. Like, it, uh, I, I would have rather had a new theme, except he just uses that same cue from Last Crusade to score that whole sequence. And that, I think that's the, because again, I agree that the Helena theme is great. The rest of it is great. I just think that that first part, it took me out of the movie because I was like, well, I'd rather be watching The Last Crusade. Like, if you're going to remind me of that, I'd rather be watching that one. With Kingdom and the Crystal Skull, the way that it kept using other cues, it, it kept kind of taking me out. Like, when they enter Area 51, and they play the arc theme. And it has nothing to do with the arc until later when he actually see the arc. It was just interesting or curious that he would use that. We identify that arc leitmotif why are they using it for when he walks into area 51 it just seems like oh this is just the lost artifact theme it's not the arc theme and then whenever they talk about his dad they use the grail theme or whatever and then i don't know i'm i'm not a big um i'm not a big fan of them using full-on cues from previous movies because i'd rather hear first of all something new but then it just seems like it's nostalgia baiting for me again i don't mean to distract from those other from the rest of the score to those last two indiana joneses but it's just, it kept reminding me of those those other ones. Um, and then with the Fablemans, I just think that it's, you, you know, we always criticize Spielberg and Williams for being too sentimental um, with the, the, the rising, uh, you know, orchestra, or orchestral score, stuff like that. I think scaling back and just making it, just concentrating, like you said, Brian, on classical music or on a piano theme, because that's what Mitzi's theme, Mitzi's forte is. She's a classically trained pianist that makes it very personal and, and obviously ties in there. I, but to me, I think the piano is maybe my favorite musical instrument because there's so much power that you can use in that where you don't really have to use a full orchestra. You could just use scale back and just have those piano themes. And I think that's what makes that score for Fableman's work so well is because it's so intensely personal and not just trying to yank at your heartstrings. It actually has mm -hmm. character to it. So, but again, I, I, I don't mean to distract from the Indiana Jones rest of the scores i just think that when you do that it takes me out of the movie i'd rather be watching something else if you're going to go that that uh, deep dive into it yeah i just i just want a quick clarification um the part that you said quotes from the last crusade is that in the prologue that you're talking about yeah for the for the whole nazis thing they just it they literally just use belly of the still beast from last crusade it's the exact same cue that they just repurposed for it just it reminded me of in rise to skywalker where you see luke lift the x-wing out of the water and they use yoda's theme it's like that's not <laughs> that has nothing to do with the story that's being told right now you're just you're using that as a callback to the empire strikes back dial of destiny is a little bit different because it's nazis but i just thought oh this is not just the theme for the tank sequence it's the theme for nazis now in the indiana jones movies i thought that just the way that they used it in the prologue um. mm-hmm no, I mean, I, I figured that was one of the things that you were talking about when you brought that up uh, in the uh, email chat earlier. Um, yeah, and I, I definitely understand that. I mean, that's part of the reason why I have issues with uh, the Geonosis sequence and the Foundry sequence in uh, in Attack of the Clones because of the fact that it brings in Yoda's theme when Yoda is nowhere to be seen on screen. And it's like, what, what are you doing? Like, this, this makes no sense whatsoever. Um, you know, I guess it kind of works, but at the same time, it's like, uh, really, you, you really, this, this, this makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, Danielle, what about you? I mean, I just want to 
make a quick comment on Rise of Skywalker. I mean, I just rewatched the, the sequel trilogy because after seeing David Newman conduct the Star Wars, Star Wars: The Force Awakens concert, I decided, well, if I'm watching the first film, I may as well watch Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker, and I'm watching them. Like, I mean, it even threw me off for a moment. Moment, but I guess they use that there because that was the same theme that was used when Yoda, even though it's Yoda's theme, uh, was able to uh, raise it out of the water. Yeah, that whole movie is just a big nostalgic. They had no idea what to do. They had no story to tell, so they just thought, "Well, let's just make nonstop callbacks to the rest of the series." Yeah, just, it's infuriating as <laughs> a movie experience. Well, when JJ uh, took over from Colin, his uh, plan was. It's not just the end of uh, one trilogy, it's the end of three massive trilogies. And yes, somehow Palpatine returned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it makes, it yeah. makes perfect sense if you've read Dark Empire. <laughs> That's all I'll say. Ugh. If, why, 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 do I have to, why do I have to read ancillary books <laughs> <laughs> to understand a reference to a movie. Come on, seriously? I, I've, had, I've had these feelings for 20 years with the Matrix sequels. Come on. Oh, that's Lando's daughter? Oh, I'm so glad I had to go out of my comfort level and read this whole other story that has nothing to do with the movie I'm watching. Yeah, all because they cut something out of the film. Or, I mean, wait, was Dark Empire the one that explains why uh, we don't see Anakin's uh, Force Ghost at all during the sequel trilogy? Because no. there's... No, D- Dark Empire was a comic that came out in the 90s, and it was the first time they broached the idea of Palpatine resurrecting himself. Ah, right, right, oh, right. Because okay. I, I knew there was a uh, canon novel that explains, uh, Luke, explains Anakin, Sports Ghost not being there, explains Luke and uh, Lando going off on their adventure, and it's like... Oh, that's Shadow of the you, Sith, I think. Yeah, and it's like... Oh, no. Bringing up one book to understand one film, it's kind of like with Marvel these days where you have to watch two series and a movie just to understand another movie. <laughs> yeah. And I just watched Multiverse of Magnus and enjoy it. Why do I have to watch WandaVision? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have 20 hours to spend. Be- because Christopher, because Christoph Beck actually writes some very delightful music for WandaVision. That's why you need to uh, watch WandaVision. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, on one hand... It would be nice if the when it comes to the Disney Plus stuff, if these actors were being fairly compensated. Yeah. I just have to get that in there. Yeah. And the writers and the directors and everyone else involved. Yeah. I mean directors directors supposedly got their deal, but it's like it, yeah. it's you know, it, it it's very telling it. it's very telling how few directors actually how much of the guild actually voted for that deal. Um yeah. but yeah. No, I yeah, we're 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 at a really weird time doing this doing this podcast and it's like I, I actually had a record on Friday and it was like, yeah, it's basically uh you know, it's 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 gonna be interesting to listen back to some of these uh podcast episodes and it's like, oh yeah, that's what was going on. But uh Danielle, what are your uh, thoughts on the music for Dow of Destiny is what was the Fablemans? I mean, Fablements was a great score. Dial of Destiny, uh, I've already listened to it once, aside from the two uh, screenings of the film that I saw. And I mean, I had fun with both. I mean, 
I love the uh, callbacks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, I've I've listened to Dial of Destiny a couple of times uh, in the past few weeks since watching Dial watching the movie, and I really enjoyed the movie overall. I I was very, you know, I my once Spielberg exited, I was I was kind of even though I like Mangold as a filmmaker, I was very not quite as sure how much I would really enjoy it. But I I was very pleasantly surprised by how I felt like it. It felt like a true conclusion to Indiana Jones' story, and it's yeah. it's another example of uh, Harrison Ford in his later years just doing absolutely tremendous work, even in characters we've have we've seen him in for decades. But um, well, yeah, and after him bringing back uh, Rick Deckard on Solo, now Indiana Jones. It's like, I wonder which character he's going to bring back next. John Book. Let's bring back more Witness. <laughs> only, or, if Peter or, or, Will, only if Peter Weir is directing. <laughs> I mean, the only other one I can think of would be Jack Ryan, but I'm not sure that would work. Yeah. yeah I mean, so many characters have played Jack Ryan. I mean, so many actors have played Jack Ryan. Yeah. But... Um, well, everyone, thank you very much for joining me for this episode of John Williams. I'm really glad I got everybody on this episode. I was really looking forward. I've been really looking forward to this episode for a while. Before we officially sign off, though, I want to give everybody a chance to tell the uh, listeners where uh, they can find you online. Salzy at the movies, S O L Z Y at the movies.com. I'm also on various uh, social media platforms at Danielle S A T M, although I'm using Blue Sky more than uh, most of the other uh, social media platforms these days. I currently write for Cinelinks, C I N E L I N X, and you can find me on most social media as music gamer 460 although i primarily use twitter until it shuts down anyway <laughs> i am um, i'm on twitter yoda princess y-o-d-a-p-r-n-c-s-s i'm also on a podcast the animani cast where we talk about animaniacs and i've been going back and revisiting the young indiana jones chronicles and writing about it on big shiny robot and you can find me again only on Twitter at DW Lundberg, uh, Nostalgia Cast. We're currently finishing up our fourth season in quote air quotes, where we concentrate on 90s movies. Brian himself was a guest talking about the Rainmaker and the John Grisham influence of that decade. But yeah, we're doing a lot of fun stuff over there. Had a lot of good conversations. Uh, feel free to join in and yell at me about uh, not liking Dial of Destiny as much as I probably <laughs> should. <laughs> But yes, uh, everybody, thank you very much for uh, joining me today for this discussion. You're welcome. Always a pleasure, Brian. Thank you, Brian. You. Thank you for having me. I'd like to thank Darren, Danielle, Becky, and Kelly for joining me on the podcast. It was, like I said, it was a long time coming. Uh, I'd wanted to do this one since... It was kind of announced that Williams might be retiring. Now that he's not, I'm curious what movies we will see see his name on again. Uh, what Spielberg movies are coming up? Um, is he going to dip his uh, 
voice back into Star Wars one more time since he uh, did the theme for Obi-Wan as well as the theme for the Solo movie. I, I, I think he's probably officially done with uh, Star Wars, but I'll be, I'll be curious to see what we get of uh, John Williams moving forward. So coming up on the podcast, uh, we've got some more great discussions, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to having those discussions with some pretty terrific people. And uh, that's going to be it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Thank you very much for uh, checking us out at um, wherever you listen to the podcast, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, Good Pods, YouTube, subscribe, rate, and review, share it with everybody. And then, uh, obviously, the Sonic Cinema Patreon at patreon.com backslash Cinema. But, of course, there is the main hub, which is www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank you very much. Thank you.